Happy New Year. And I'm looking forward to Valentine's Day right around the corner. I got all my <laughs> Valentine's decorations up here. Um, as you can see, big hearts behind me, uh, a lot of red. You are uh, all over the place with your holidays lately. Uh, first, you start off early with Christmas in you know November, and then you hop back to Thanksgiving after we pass the holiday. And now you're <laughs> on to Valentine's Day already. No, no, you you promised me more Christmas movies, and I know about some of the ones you've watched. So you're going to tell me about them right here. I've been watching romantic comedies throughout the week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to say I've I've uh, regressed back to romantic comedies. Um, but uh, before then, I, I had evolved onto uh, top peak um, Christmas movies with sharks in them. Um, Santa Jaws was the highlight of my holiday season. Yeah, I was uh, fascinated by that that entry when I saw that on Letterboxd. So uh, you have to tell me about it right now. Well, I saw Santa Jaws, Jurassic Shark, and Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Shark, which seems like a good one, too. Um, just this whole trifecta of uh, movie parodies. It's almost like a porn parody, but you just put a shark in it. Uh, so I was immediately hooked, especially when I found out it was the same plot as Home Alone. Um, I, I had also watched a French movie last night, which was uh, Dial Code Santa Claus, which uh, preceded Home Alone and is the same movie, but fucking terrifying. So uh, that's the actual inspiration. Did, um, did it also precede Die Hard, which Home Alone is famously is just with a kid coding? Possibly. I, I might need to look up the the dates for that one. But um, <laughs> there's a, a wealth of great Christmas movies. And I went to Santa Joe's right away to start my watch. Um, it's a it's a so it's a shark and it's in the water, but it has a well, there's they're acting out a Santa Claus play on the pier. And uh, one of the guys is tossed in as part of the part of the action, and uh, well, the shark eats him, but but doesn't eat his hat. So uh, the hat catches on his fin, and he becomes uh, Santa Jaws. <laughs> Some of the stupidest shit I've ever heard. So why why are they acting out a Christmas play on the pier? Like that's more confusing to me than the shark already. I like I think it may be a film. Uh, it's unclear what the what exactly they were doing, but, but it's a very cheesy combat and guy gets thrown in. Co combat. So so it's a it's a an action film or play Christmas themed playing out on a pier. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Any uh, questions? Yeah, none of those words fit together in any kind of logical sequence uh, as much as you want to try and put it together. That has never happened in the history of things. Our friend, our friend Sean was pretty accurate in saying you could cut out a few scenes and run it on Cartoon Network. I mean, it's not as exploitative as these usually get. I watched a Thanks Killing right before it, which is just like a, a, I think the beginning first few words are like Thanksgiving's all about the breasts. Like, you know, it's a, there's different levels to exploitation and Santa Jaws isn't on like that, that lowest tier of holiday. I, what am I saying? <laughs> am I defending Santa I, Jaws against other holiday movies now? So, so, so I got at least one more question about it. Okay. You, you have to forgive me for grilling you so much on Santa Jaws because I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but I don't want to actually subject myself to it. <laughs> I've seen pictures from the film and it's a, he's apparently got a, candy cane narwhal horn like on yeah. his head along with the santa hat and that's what he uses to skewer his victims it's true 
is is there an explanation that is that like a natural growth from shark does the does the hat give him the the candy cane powers i think maybe they try to harpoon him and it gets stuck in there or something they they harpoon him with a with a candy Candy cane cane. i believe so (laughs) (laughs) they tried all kinds of things and a lot of it's just like this girl just like listlessly throwing things in the water and having no effect but i think they get him with the candy cane and that's uh, his attack method from there. Okay, so so one more question. And okay. I promise I'm done. I need to know how they defeat Santa Jaws. How how does the movie end? The way you defeat all sharks, honestly. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> well, uh, a ringing endorsement for Santa Jaws then. <laughs> can, it, can he ever really be defeated? Um... Well, uh, alternatively... I started my Christmas watching last night uh, okay. with, with an actual classic. Uh, I watched uh, White Christmas, of course, the, the Bing Crosby film, which I find uh, very delightful, very heartwarming, very beautiful. Uh, the first film that uh, Paramount shot in Vista Vision, which uh, is the ultimate visual format, of course. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's definitely a holiday favorite, I think. <laughs> well it's uh i had watched that one too because i've watched all the christmas movies um i i like a lot of the stuff early on especially when they're singing the songs with the sisters and there's the they they do the bit places (laughs) they do the bit where they they then and they have the record going it's a great comic bit that they they thought up on set apparently which is a great moment i i i certainly agree with where i think you're headed here and that it it kind of lags a bit in the middle it stagnates after they kind of get to the hotel but it's got a really good emotional core centered around this tie with the the army and the the military the world war ii aspect that, of it that vis vision's really shining like at its best like on the train it feels so romantic and so christmasy and uh, when you're you know when you're in that initial setting you could really feel the the power of that like colorized visual it, it looks much different Oh yeah, and it's it's got that crisp high definition to it, uh, you know, and and you're right, and I think that's what makes me uh, most pleased with it is that it it feels more Christmassy than most Christmas movies, I might argue. It's it really <laughs> yeah. nails the idea of the spirit and the warmth of community and and the togetherness aspect, and uh, even though it does flag a bit in the middle, and uh, it probably has way too many songs, um, it does. <laughs> Yeah. It has the one song, which is one of the greatest Christmas songs of all time, White Christmas. Are arguably the greatest Christmas song. Uh, it's it's so instantaneous and classic, like straightforward, but entirely, you know, you know, brilliant in his execution. Or even Erling Berlin, when he wrote it, he just, you know, he was like, this is the perfect song. I've written the perfect song. And, he had. Uh, and yeah. that's why it remains the highest selling song ever. Never. Yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect Christmas song. There's nothing wrong with that song. And to base a whole movie around like that premise and uh, it, it's really nice. And I like that uh, um, because it's Bing Crosby, he has to go and do like the whole uh, uh, military thing, of course, by the end. Right. That's yeah. just in his contract, I think. Well, well, and what's nice is that it doesn't feel like contrived or forced or anything like that. It feels very natural within the film and they link the, the sentimental nature of that with the themes of the film, which I think, uh, you know, just, it, it makes that purpose, you know, really ring. Uh, you know, it, I'm, I was very impressed with that aspect of it, of course. And uh, I just love being on screen as well. You know, yeah, earlier this year, I, I, so watched magnetic. All the, I watched all the road movies, which are like various levels. 
there are various levels of mediocre and uh but they're they're more interesting the more you watch because they kind of keep like building off of themselves and they get like increasingly meta in weird ways and not always successful but there's at least one good one so like if if you like bing crosby and bob hope enough then it's worth watching but like it it really like depends on if you like them or not and white christmas may be the greatest christmas song of all time but speaking of greatest of all time we've reached 100 and we're getting to (laughs) very important auteur today uh, one of the most significant filmmakers of all time and i'm so excited to be able to talk to you about it because i know we have a shared passion and christopher landon just put out his new movie it's freaky I hope you realize that you're breaking the unspoken pact we made when we did the Happy Death Day podcast in that we would leave behind this discussion for the rest of our podcasts. <laughs> you're you're entirely going against the entire purpose I agreed to do that to begin with here. So our greatest auteur of our time, Christopher <laughs> Landon, has put out uh, a new film, Freaky, which is outside the Happy Death Day universe. So I, I'm able to talk about it this week. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going around our contract uh, I, I had a blast with this. I, I love that there's unpretentious horror movies aimed for teenagers that are a lot of fun. And they don't think too much about their premise. Like it, once you think about it, it kind of falls apart, but it's not that they don't think about it at all. I mean, they, they do enough to make the premise fun and to work off something. Uh, Vince Vaughn uh, swaps bodies with this teenage girl. Uh, it's a lot of fun seeing them act in each other's bodies. It's kind of like a, a Jack Black and Jumanji kind of thing. Um, it, but it but it leverages that for a lot more comedy. And it gets uh, clever use out of LGBTQ characters that are uh, purposeful, I think. And uh, it's just a meaningful, fun comedy that uh, comedy horror that I, I really like that kind. I feel like he's the one director who's actually taken the right notes from Scream and uh, continues to do something interesting in that format, whereas modern horror is going toward like hereditary and uh, the the haunted house thing. Uh, there's there's a lot more space in horror that was left in the '90s, so I'm glad someone's doing it. You know, look looking at it here, I'm I'm a I'm a little taken with the the concept. I at least buy it, yeah. and, and I agree that this idea that you know somebody making more straightforward comedy horrors, someone like taking, should, yeah, and 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 parodying these kind of things. And bringing back the kind of Freaky Friday tropes and stuff, the body swapping genre, I think yeah. is uh, an, an interesting take here, especially. I think casting Vince Vaughn as a serial killer is uh, pretty inspired. He doesn't have to do much acting. I believe no. entirely that he is a serial killer. Uh, and and so it's a it's a kind of fun, cheeky concept, it looks like here, that uh, I, I, I would probably enjoy if i bothered to watch yeah if you force me to watch eventually i should say after we get to happy death day too um uh (laughs) christopher landa at some point wanted to make a crossover between happy death day and freaky but um i think taking these tropes from scream plus groundhog day or scream plus freaky friday is actually inventive i mean if you combine enough things i think you get to a level of invention rather than just homage i mean he's doing something new here uh, this hasn't been done as a horror movie, so that's nice. I'm I'm curious to see what his mashup of Friday the 13th and The Love Bug will look like. <laughs> it was originally called Freaky Friday the 13th, which I like more. It was also had a killer body, which is a hilarious like exploitative title, but doesn't fit as well. But I like the double meaning of freaky and um, 
uh, Freaky Friday is is something kind of fun to like plunge out of like the the depths of like um this is services. this is a a I think I guess a more decent like plumbing of uh nostalgia I guess if you're yeah. if you're trying to evoke that without literally imitating it uh since that's all anyone can do nowadays is just you know you know tote out old properties and you know make what they can of it uh so i i prefer this approach which at least it seems to have a a more flicker of originality to it than you know what the 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 deluge of other crap we're getting right now (laughs) i'm leaving it in my 13th favorite film of the year which i don't know if it's honest but it's there um it came out (laughs) friday the 13th in november so uh, there's that that was in theater so i i was only just able to catch up with it this week um, I'm glad to hear that you are getting your Christopher Landon fill. Yeah, I, I hope he can keep making movies. <laughs> you, it, at least, it, even if you're the only one who's going to go see him, maybe you can end up bankrolling him someday. Who knows? That's the that's the ideal, I think. Uh, just infinite Happy Death Day movies. Uh, there's uh, one other um, other new thing to talk about before we get into the world of Orson Welles um, and Mank. There's uh, probably my favorite TV show of the year I've discovered this week. Uh, that's really interesting to me because it came out of nowhere. I thought it would just be some like frivolous like extra on HBO Max, but it's a how to with John Wilson. Uh, it's a series of documentaries about a guy a lot like, have you seen Nathan for you? Uh, I'm familiar with it. Okay. So it's that kind of brand of uh, really dry comedy. It's a guy living on his streets in New York and just walking around Queens and uh, thinking about things. I think he's thinking outside the box about how do you have a small conversation? How do you make small talk with people? What does it mean to cover your furniture? <laughs> and he extrapolates <laughs> something like how to cover your furniture into people. Um, he finds people that are uh, in favor of everyone having foreskin. And he like goes to this guy's house and he's laid out naked on his bed, stretching his dick up against his bed. And, and he's able to like take these small things and make large metaphors for them. I think it's like docu-poetry is the best way I'd describe it, with a sense of really dry, thick humor. Um, Kevin and I, I think it's one of our favorites. So it's sure to make our end of year list, but um, there's something about how he dissects all the parts of all our culture. Um, one of the best episodes is like about architecture in New York. It's about scaffolding and how it protects us and um, whether it's really worth it to be that protected and how it ruins what looked like a normal street and he goes to New Orleans and thinks well they don't have scaffolding because it was already planned into their buildings so it's talking about future of architecture and if we should plan ahead and I went into his uh, Vimeo account and looked at some of his old videos and he has videos about Sim City and parallels to top-down city planning in New York I mean he's just a genius that takes these abstract ideas and blows them up into big philosophical metaphors I mean I just love this show and I, I can't stop thinking about how funny it is, but also how deep and how interesting it is as a documentary. So the last one's about COVID and he lives like next door to an old lady and all she really wants is risotto. So he has to go find someone to <laughs> make a perfect risotto. He goes to a neighbor's place. It has an Italian flag. So he's like, you show me how to make the right risotto. So the guy brings him into his kitchen, shows him and he makes her a risotto. But as that's happening, COVID starts and you start just seeing a city moving in one way and it's one of the more interesting documents of that like development happening too so uh very touching ending um i recommend this show wholeheartedly i, I can hear your your utter enthusiasm for it i couldn't have 
wedged a word in there even <laughs> if i wanted to you you definitely have a a lot of a lot of vigor for it which is a uh, of course a resounding recommendation here uh more than santa jaws it sounds like uh <laughs> at least equal i'd recommend <laughs> how to with john wilson it's on hbo and uh i the one thing i don't know what's documentary and what's fake right like a something like this he could be setting up all the props he has all these insert shots and establishing shots within new york city and everything fits together so perfectly you you have to imagine he's he's done something like that that he's that he's manufactured some of it or something staged but um i i feel like that's just as valuable and it's just as interesting as long as it tells the truth so well it's great to hear uh i might just definitely have to check that out based on a what you're saying here uh on hbo right yeah hbo max um, uh, which is a, a changing the future of cinema this week but uh, maybe we'll have a clearer <laughs> picture of that when we get back yeah did uh, any any opinion on that news with the uh, warner brothers um i i feel like they should have consulted the the directors themselves i feel like people have a lot of projects in the air and uh, most actors make their big actors make their money on the back end so it's a probably a blindside for a lot of them that aren't getting their contracts fulfilled now. Uh, so that'll be interesting. But if people still go to the theaters, they still will. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's a tough thing because knowing that things here probably won't return to normal until at least like three-fourths of the way through the year once, you know, vaccines roll out and such. Uh, from, from a corporate standpoint, you kind of can't keep holding on to the films for another yeah. year. But also... You know there are contractual obligations, and you know you can't just like you know spike everything uh, like that. It, I don't know. It's a, it's a very weird scenario, and I'm sure a lot of like uh, actual like contractual issues that I'm not privy to uh, entirely involved here as to why so many people are up in arms about it, in particular. Uh, and it just seems like a really messy scenario, and probably a hasty decision on the part of part of warner brothers there well so i guess we'll see how it all shakes out it's hard because every major studio like that has a film slate right like they have 12 films this year then obviously 12 next year and i think they've pushed as hard as they could to get everything out of 2020 and so they're kind of stuck in in an unenviable position right now i don't know what there's no right solution so it's certainly not someone has to move it and i i think at most of the small theaters found out about five minutes before it was announced which is a kind of fucked up um i'd prefer a lot more disclosure uh i think it would have been fine to do but i would have advised everyone and found out which movies were okay with it first yeah i don't know again uh, obviously we're not qualified to figure yeah. out what the proper solution was but uh definitely big old mess there between <laughs> warner brothers and hbo and also people are talking about how hbo is not making as much money as it's supposed to like they're yeah. not getting as many subscriptions as they thought uh which I'm sure is a big part of this. AT&T took over and wants money. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we'll see how things go. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't know why you know, more people aren't signing up for HBO. Although I, I guess I, I, I guess I'm contributing to the problem by yeah. not. They're not offering me anything in particular that I want. I already have everything I need. Well, they have the Turner Classic movies. But, but I have Turner Classic movies. And I have it with all the <laughs> intros. So why would I watch it on HBO? Yeah. You know, it's just definitely, uh, and I, I think that probably also the bigger problem is the lack of like availability uh, yeah. through like streaming apps like Roku and uh, Amazon and such. 
you know, just it really yeah, that, that's that, it, that really limits uh, it. I know because we had that similar problem with the Criterion Channel launch. I, I literally bought a Fire Stick because my Chromecast <laughs> wouldn't work with it. Well, that's the thing is also I, I sold off all my consoles in prep, just clearing up for next gen. And now I have a laptop that could play HBO Max. I mean, my, my options are very limited now. I have an Apple TV that's outdated and doesn't you can't download apps. I can't get HBO Max there because it's a new app and not the HBO that's on there. Um, I have a Fire Stick, which doesn't have it, and a Roku that doesn't have it. So three options, none of them have it. I mean, it is inaccessible. Yeah, I don't know. What, what are you supposed to do when you when you yeah. literally have like all of the like predominant you know abilities with which to stream in HBO Max? Just like you can use a web browser. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's perfect for something like How to with John Wilson. But am I going to watch Wonder Woman on my computer? Probably not. I'll probably at least blow it up on the screen. But uh, put it on all those sticks. I I need it on my Fire Stick and Roku Roku stick. Yeah. Uh, all, all the sticks, your walking sticks, your yeah. canes, uh... walking sticks. Uh, <laughs> put it on our dicks. We we need it. <laughs> Just go and say what everyone's thinking. Well, uh, speaking of dicks, um, <laughs> we have a new film from David Fincher this week. Uh, speaking of dicks, uh, there's. Uh, uh, I I knew it would be. Uh, an electrifying talk anyway i knew that we'd have different takes in some capacity but i didn't realize how close we'd end up being on it <laughs> in a way uh i i have a hard time figuring out how biased i went into the film because a lot of information leading up to its release uh was was coloring my opinion certainly but i still went in with the uh, intent to give it a, a fair shake as a film itself beyond the uh, <laughs> you know copious disinformation I knew that it that it would accompany it and uh, it just wasn't a good movie just wasn't yeah. a, a good movie so, I think we got an even worse outcome is that the disinformation wasn't bad but the film itself is miserable <laughs> well it's not so much that the disinformation is bad because I do think that the the idea that it continues to propagate long debunked theories and gross you know misrepresentations of you know uh important people and particularly in this case orson wells is always going to be a bad thing and a criminal uh so but... i guess that's what i want to get into here with you is that do you feel like there was a capacity for this to be an okay movie and for me i, I guess i believe that you could still make something within the Paul, Pauline Kale accusations as long as you twist it at the end and make sure that it's very clear what you're doing and it's very transparent. Well, I, I think I think the big thing here and as to why this is so much less of an issue than I anticipated it being is that the, the Orson Welles credit controversy thing here is like such a minimal aspect of the film. It's like... Yeah just at the end really when it actually comes up and uh it takes a stance on things and like for for most of the runtime it's a non-factor it's not what the film is concerned about it's got other narratives that are taking the center stage there so yeah i think there is a hundred percent ability for this to be a great film yeah i thought so mixing. and it's not the first film to misrepresent you know the, the character of wells it's would not you say worst. almost all of them have <laughs> in some I, capacity i would say the only uh uh there, there's two 
that I find all right. And and one we've talked about on the podcast before, and that's me uh, and Orson Welles, maybe. No, I, I don't. Uh, I don't like that one though. Joseph okay. McBride, the historian, uh, the Welles historian, it was all right with that one, even though it does go towards the Megan like, like tyrannical let's go tyrannical yeah, yeah. uh depiction of wells uh towards the end um the the one that's i think uh unassailable really is just the brief cameo of him in ed wood ed which my favorite one yeah well and and the reasoning why is that it it goes the opposite direction in deifying wells a bit but it does so in a scene that's so obviously detached from the reality of the film and to a point where it's not presenting Wells as an actual person. It's very yeah. much like like this idea of a, a kind of manifestation of like he's Wells is a manifestation of everything Wood thinks is a brilliant director. You know, I think that's how you would have to do it. Is you'd have to make it almost fantastical or like Amadeus or Rocketman like to be able to have the capacity to believe in something that's biographical but but also really twisted. Well, that's that's the hard thing when it comes to depicting wells is that he is such a larger than life figure that yeah. uh, a lot of it is hard to not only replicate but to believe to begin with and it's, it's like trump <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> i i guess you're right in the sense that uh i have a hard time imagining a you know uh, uh a great depiction of trump in any kind of like biographical format without it well, dipping I, into like parody or over exaggeration <laughs> i think wells is just so singular and here like the what's the guy's name tom burke is that the guy playing yeah, wells? okay yeah he he puts on like the fake nose of course which is a nice homage and but he looks more like david fincher to me than wells i mean <laughs> even he embodies more of like fincher's philosophies i think but uh but sounds yeah. like wells I think, yeah, he does a great job sounding like Wells. But again, one of the, the weird things is this um, <laughs> idea that we can't get, like, like, like the representation of Wells is always like way out of step with what he was. Like, because at the time of writing and, and making Citizen Kane, Wells was 24 years old, which of course is, is something no nobody can wrap their head around. It's just so beyond our understanding that a you know, basically a, a kid made one of the greatest films ever on Wait, his first attempt. Like, uh, you're 24, right? Like, you're <laughs> around that age, right? Yeah. 24, you know, 12, maybe 36, <laughs> somewhere in that range. Yeah. Uh, but but Tom Burke is actually, uh, I think, almost 40, if my math is right. Okay. And I he's barely in the film. I mean, it yeah. Barely... <laughs> It doesn't get into that as much as I think we were worried about. And I think the more disappointing part is just how inert and uh, kind of tepid the whole thing is. I mean, there, there's really no feeling to it at all. Yeah, that's the, the big thing. In interviews, uh, Fincher had said that the thing that drew him to the material, to, to the idea of making the film, was the character of Mank himself and this struggle with, you know, this idea of like uh, having your, your, your voice heard, you know, and this uh, the idea of legacy that he kind of, you know, struggles with the end of the film and, you know, wanting that recognition for the impact he has in writing this, you know, damning portrait of William Randolph Hearst in the form of Kane's character. And uh, it, it just doesn't come across like that particularly. Uh, Gary Oldman is a little off in the film yeah. who's who's usually like 
uh, one of the greatest actors I think currently working, and he just feels like kind of all over the place here. Like the, the motivation for the character is not there in the script. Uh, his his bouts with drunkenness feel very unmotivated. Uh, you know, like this idea of it's some great struggle that Mank had to overcome his whole life. It doesn't feel like a big thing. You don't get a sense of his kind of electric and charismatic personality that everyone uh, who knew him, you know, claimed him for. Uh, you know, he's, he's kind of bumbling, you know, he's not, he's not witty, like the, the writing just doesn't reflect anything there. And I think that comes down to the fact that, you know, it was, an, it's an old script from David Fincher's father, who was not a screenwriter. This is no. the only thing he ever wrote. And it, and it shows, it shows a lot. It shows such unfocus. And I never thought the result could be that Sorkin would have the better movie than Fincher this year. But I mean, Chicago Seven. I wish, I wish they just made a movie together, and that uh, we had a Sorkin script for Mank. I feel like he would have understood it, and uh, that if it came from a genuine screenwriter, uh, a story like this could have so much more power and truth. I I didn't mention this in the review I have for the site, which should be available when this goes up. But uh, both of them already made the best summation of. Citizen Kane they did good in in the social network 10 yeah, years ago it's, it's almost a perfect uh, oh it's it's a uh it's a very similarly structured and reminiscent story of yeah. Kane uh it obviously takes from it a lot uh both in the terms of the writing and the direction and so you know I'm, I'm not again and again I see that's why uh Fincher wasn't as compelled by the actual Kane aspect of Manx story which again like the writing of Kane is so inert inconsequential uh non-existent uh and and so which I find particularly befuddling because visually he feels the need to recreate and pay homage to Kane so often in in like the most surface level and benign way almost calling it recreation is offensive like he tries to do the toll and deep focus shots but None of them convey deep focus or that none of them convey like a sense of depth is what I'm trying to get at. Um, it, it's mixed results. Uh, he and, does. He, he often does the, the foreground fade out yeah. lighting technique for transitions. He literally recreates like some of the opening shots of it where, where it fades out from the exterior of, in Kane and then fades in with the interior. He does the shot with the snow globe falling, but instead it's a <laughs> bottle of, of second all from, uh, Mank. Yeah. And and it and it Clever, just feels like at least that one I like it, but... they they just feel so so lazy and like attention like tr- like like calling for attention to themselves. They don't feel naturally incorporated. You know, it definitely feels like it's a Citizen Kane shot. Look, it's a Citizen Kane shot. Yeah. Look, we're doing Citizen Kane. Um but it it never achieves the same effect because it can't. I mean, it's not the same story and it doesn't have the same purpose in its story. Oh, and and it's weird because it goes beyond just the visual attempts at, at recreation. Like I said, the uh, it, it attempts to structurally recall the inventiveness and irreverence of Citizen Kane, but it's actually just so plain and straightforward of an alternating forward-moving narrative that just feels so bland. <laughs> no matter how they shoot the shots, my biggest issue is it looks so digital. I'm always going to be looking at it on my flat screen it probably deserved to be at least projected um, uh, I, it'll always look worse than citizen kane because it is digital 
I've I've read around that a lot of issues that people have had in, in watching it and why it looks so bad is because of Netflix's compression issues. Is that it? That might that's, be a huge That's part. what I've heard, but it's not it goes beyond that because it's obviously not just, you know, an issue of, of, of rendering or presentation. It's just poorly shot to begin with. Uh the the lighting is absolutely abysmal. Which is extremely ironic, considering that Kane is one of the greatest examples of inventive and cinematic lighting uh, of any film. I mean, yeah, you <laughs> think of you think of the top examples of some forms of lighting, and you picture scenes from Citizen Kane. So, if you're going to call that to mind, you, you might want to do a little better than this. It's like there's there's something weird. It doesn't have yeah. a good balance of. Uh, like like shading and color everything is like a muddled and gross gray uh <laughs> like it doesn't have the stark contrast at all that it's trying to to replicate uh it tries to do so with these extremely overblown floodlights which just like you know entirely uh over light scenes and then there's other parts where the film is just like the it, it's so dark it's hard to see anything uh and, and it's just a really difficult film to watch because of yeah. how uh, horribly shot. Like I, I have said for a while that m most people who who film in black and white nowadays don't know how to shoot in black and white, don't know the purpose behind it. Um, I'd also say but, people who shoot in color have no intention of using color. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, I, it's at least it would be less distracting. Like had this been in color, I would have. Uh, I don't think I would have had as much problem with it because it at least would have looked normal like this is mm. just it's it's difficult to watch just in general i don't know why. I, I feel like there's <laughs> part of my theory is that fincher needs such like a normalized baseline because if you're shooting a scene 120 times it has to look like one basic way and i think he has such a direct idea of how every sequence has to look that there's like no variety in the visual here like everything is so pallid and so gray and boring i mean like you're saying there's so much emotion in citizen kane's lighting but there's none here i don't feel moved by it at all well, and and the real question is why does it need to yeah. be in black and white is it well, just because citizen kane is in black and white is because people can't comprehend the 1930s if it's not in black and white uh it's so corny by the way having those dots on the top right to change the, oh. the burn marks it was so funny. I laughed. Yeah. I laughed at those because it's so ridiculous and out of place and like obvious. Like, like, let me ask you this. Do you notice them when you watch films, like actual movies that were shot on film, the, I mean, the real change markers in the top right corner? I mean, occasionally you will, right? But I, I, it's all right, all right. I, occasionally, I but of, unless it looks forced like this. Yeah, but but generally you don't notice them. They happen yeah. very seamlessly within the film. Here they're uh, very obvious, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like Fight Club. I mean, why are you giving me flashbacks to your own work here? It's it's not calling back what you think it is. It's making me think about Fight Club, which I'd rather be watching. Well, yeah, and 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 I, I referenced that in the review because yeah. it's obviously just it was uh, everyone knows about cigarette burns because Fight Club, you know, <laughs> right. made an acknowledgement of it. So it feels like a really tacky like callback to it, as opposed to like a genuine attempt at recreation. Because again, there's so many other bizarre choices that like like half attempts to recreate things like so, the film is in black and white but you're still working with a widescreen aspect ratio which wasn't used at that time 
The primary thing I think we'll disagree with is that I love the sound design. I love the garbled old 40s sound, and that's a good affectation for me. I realize it's still affectation and imitation, but I feel like they achieved like a really interesting effect with it, and I like how everyone sounds. It's it's not that I don't like it. I'm I'm incredibly indifferent to it as I am okay. most things in the film. Uh, you know, shoot, well, but like having a, a a mono soundtrack instead of a stereo, it's fine. You know, yeah. uh, it, the, I I'm not so keen on hearing that I can make a perceptible difference with the the multi tracks and stuff. Uh, it's it's not going to make or break any film one way or the other for me. Uh, I think it's a perfect fine choice to go with. It's just like that. It's confusing to me when it's like you find the importance of, you know, era recreation enough to do that, but you don't, you know, go beyond like getting the rest of the facts straight. I think, I think one of the funniest things I saw, of course, online was someone pointing out that the, the pitch they make to um, Paramount in, in the beginning of the film yeah. in the 1930s section. And they're talking about like pitching a cheap horror movie <laughs> as a crossover between Frankenstein and the Wolfman. And just like the entire like lack of knowledge of film history, like this idea that not only were neither of those films out in 1930, but those two films were part of two different waves of Universal's horror films more than a decade apart. Like those, those films are entirely like, you know, like, like they, they have only gained a connection throughout the years of being shown together of, blo of blocks on TV there was no association between them at any point prior to that. I mean, there was like a, a Wolfman in like the twenties, but it was MGM and we're talking. That's, that's, not, so that's like, obviously not what they're talking about. It's here. definitely not. So I'm saying there's like no way that this is like a valuable actual thing that could have been discussed. It's, it's entirely uh, ludicrous. And like the most egregious oversight you could have for this, like, come on, that's basic <laughs> filmic knowledge like learning about the universal monsters is one of the first parts of, of golden age hollywood the first eras you learn about it's a shame because that that setting in there when they're talking about making the movies and stuff is one of the better conversations in the film i like a i like some of the ones about socialism and talking about politics as well it gets into the gubernatorial race in california which is interesting that's that's so much more the focus of the film than any of the kane stuff which is an interesting choice because apparently it came in much later drafts and at first when when fincher's father showed it to him uh fincher didn't really understand the what it has to do with kane because uh, it doesn't really it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's, we don't it's know really either. disconnected what it deals with is it deals with the idea of uh studio politicking and the power of the moguls and their influence on things and the suppression of things which would have an interesting parallel if you got into the similar suppression done to the actual film Kane, which is a, a very fascinating story that's not at all gone into here. This idea that there was a giant campaign by all the studio heads to try and destroy the negative of Kane yeah. before it saw release. That's an interesting thing, but uh, that's not dealt with here. But instead, they focus on the that 1934 California gubernatorial race. Uh, when <laughs> nobody knows the difference between Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis anyway. So <laughs> it, it would, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that that comes up. And uh, I, I thought it was very odd, not enough to comment in the review, but enough to say here that they cast Bill Nye, the science guy 
it's who not I've, Sinclair. Who I've met twice in the airport, by the way. <laughs> what? He's a, he's a Seattle resident, so I, I've met him twice when he's going places. So that's you, a fun... You met Bill Nye at the airport on two, two different times. occasions. Yes. Do, did you have any interesting exchanges you can tell me about? I didn't. He's just such a really nice, beautiful guy. <laughs> I, I really like Bill Nye. Uh, yeah, he's, so he's cool. It's just, it was very odd to see him so prominently in, in the film for that scene. I was like, like not, not that Bill Nye isn't allowed, you know, his SAG card and yeah. to, to be an actor and things, uh, but it's just weird because he has this, you know, uh, persona to him. So, so to see him pop up in a 1930s period pieces, very odd. <laughs> it just threw me off yeah. <laughs> a, a little, but it's not his fault necessarily i can't blame the guy for it dude just wants to be an actor you know yeah we had like bob ross and fred rogers and bill nye they were like the trifecta of childhood back then so i'm glad he's still around doing things and not dead yeah but yeah the uh the the gubernatorial stuff it, it feels like what the film cares about most to explore and even then it's very half-hearted because it's like being thrown back and forth between the 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 Marion Davies plot stuff at San Simeon. And then, you know, back in the modern day, the 1940s narrative with the the writing of Kane, which is just, it just kind of like slowly trucks along. You don't actually get any kind of perspective on, you know, how, how it's going, what's being written about specifically or anything or the different stages of it. Like the film doesn't really care about exploring the actual writing process or any of the details of it. And, I don't think it cares that much about contextualizing things, uh, particularly when it comes to the relationship between William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies and their impact on the, the Kane script, how uh, Mankiewicz was influenced by them and, and incorporated their the kind, kind of like these semblance of characters to, to them. Like one, one of the big things that's, that's always said is that the portrait of Marion Davies kind of communicated in Kane is not at all like she was in person. The idea of Susan Alexander as this kind of, you know, airheaded, you know, failure of a, you know, performer. Uh, and and it wasn't meant to be that part, that that wasn't meant to be a portrait of Marion Davies as a person, more so just like this relationship. Again, it's way more, Kane is way more representative of Hearst, but she kind of got caught as collateral damage and everyone now thinking she was an airhead, you know, uh, gold digger essentially and um, uh but anyway i'd say like the casting of amanda seafried is her is like one of the winning ideas um it's nice to see someone from mean girls likely to win at academy awards uh that's that's likely to happen i, w I would say if everyone in the cast she does the best job the, the material she's working with is still really not helpful maybe uh, most the... favorable to her she gets good things to do it yeah the the portrait they paint of Davies is also not entirely accurate because they're they're playing more off of her screen persona from her talkie films and like the right. uh, uh, kind of post blonde bombshell era where where there was a very specific look and style that every actress was going for in the the mold of Jean Harlow, mm -hmm. but uh, you know so so it's not really a portrait of her as a person which is you know, ironic considering the complaints with Kane and stuff misrepresenting her. But anyway, uh, th they don't really delve into their relationship as much. Like if you're not already familiar with the kind of history of William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies, like I think it's very easy to 
miss how their relationship works, the context of it, who who Hurst is, and, and really his influence at large. Like they don't really paint him in in, in the significant and all powerful you know manner that he he actually had, and why taking him on as a figure to lambast in a script like this uh, was such a big deal. Like you don't get the sense of his influence watching Mank. No. No, not at all. Um, some things are half developed, but I think overall we're we're a lot closer than I thought we'd be. Since I yeah. liked every other Fincher, I thought I would at least like it, but uh, very mediocre. Yeah, um, I'm I'm not a terrible Fincher fanboy, but I did praise Social Network quite a lot yeah. here when I was on here. Uh, yeah, some th- great movies. Is... Seven Social yep, Network. Seven, seven. I like. Uh, I still. I, I probably still like Fight Club. I'll have to go back and revisit that. To, just to make good. sure maybe we should do I a podcast when you do <laughs> i bet it's i bet it's still good i don't like the game too much i think the game is pretty contrived i think i'm one of the only fans that are remaining of the curious case of benjamin button i love the f scott fitzgerald story there so mm-hmm. uh, i love this that is, short story and it's even better than that this is definitely the worst film i've seen from <laughs> david fincher yeah. uh and, and it's a trend of like worst films i've seen from prominent directors that put out by netflix this year (laughs) this year's been rough for like the prominent acclaimed you were making a point yesterday of the the blockbuster director in 2020 i feel like the ones that were going to succeed have all been pushed to 2021 we'll see yeah like this tenant was a big flop uh um let's see here uh the the kaufman one i'm thinking of ending things uh mixed probably at best most of (laughs) us here uh, having a great disdain for it um and uh the five bloods was a su- such a thorough disappointment for me i think i like mank a little bit more than that but i think you you like that one all right i know oh yeah yeah um the there are some ups and downs there but none of them as superlative as the best works we could say that with confidence yeah um let's let's take a break here uh, and we'll come back with sis and kane sponsored by uh cool jazz <laughs> the coolest jazz around uh <laughs> welcome back to kwny and we're back with uh david here who's uh orson wells expert um david how was orson wells for you in the jazz age uh or- orson wells i think embodies the jazz age in uh so many ways yes i am uh down with the jive as they say <laughs> uh Yes, Orson Welles, uh, or as I prefer to call him, the embodiment of jazz. <laughs> his uh, his whole personality exudes that, you know, uh, un- undefinable sense of, of jazz rhythm. <laughs> What's so cool to me is that I was introduced to him in a radio class. Um, so my first Orson Welles was War of the Worlds, I mean, the whole radio program. And then we watch uh, Citizen Kane and we're talking about RKO and the confluence of um, 
radio and film. And that was part of my paper I was writing. So uh, that, that was really my first exposure to Wells was just writing about him in, in the context of radio, which is, it's really fascinating to me. If, if you haven't listened to more of Orson Welles on the radio, I, I highly recommend uh, his, his Campbell Playhouse stuff where they would, would put on plays and such in the throughout the 30s. And even later on, um, particularly one of the, the series I really enjoyed is throughout the, uh, the 50s, he uh, starred on a series called The Lives of Harry Lyme, which took his mm-hmm. character from the third man and just kind of explored the the various adventures he would have gone on in post-war Europe, uh, you know, prior to the events of the film, which, which is highly entertaining. And uh, I, I've enjoyed listening to them so many times, but yeah, uh, Orson Welles, obviously before he was a filmmaker was a, a gigantic radio sensation, you know, uh, all across uh, New York, he was everywhere and anywhere uh and that which is why he got that uh contract in the first place to go make a film with uh rko because everyone was trying to uh rope wells into making a a project a film of some kind uh because he was such uh a a maverick personality uh on the radio and in theater all over broadway he was you know making headlining you know sensations whether it was uh, a fascist take on Julius Caesar, the famous voodoo Macbeth, yeah. the uh, you know the the controversial Cradle Will Rock, which they performed you know from the the seats after they were barred from the unions from from performing. Uh, but yeah, and and so eventually, of course, Hollywood came calling, and all of this was done before he was even twenty four years old, That's which incredible. is insane. Yeah, it's it's really. Like, I don't think, as we kind of talked about in reference with the Manx stuff, it's it's unfathomable that someone so young could be so accomplished as, yeah. as Wells. And and so, and, and part of it as well is just like he had this incredible charm and knowledge and, and, and intelligence to him and this like, you know, sweeping personality that that's one of the big things that never comes across in portrayals of him on film is this idea that he was such a magnetic force. Yeah. You know, I I don't think it's unfair to portray him as a little, you know, megalomaniac. I'm fucking it up again. (laughs) A a little maniac. (laughs) It's a hard Something like that. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and this idea of like throwing tantrums and stuff because he was known for that he had a short temper and ways and he was very you know specific about things he wanted particularly later on in life he was he was very embittered in his older uh age but you know the that doesn't stop him from still having that electric personality that really pulled people into his orbits you know so often uh and and that's something that's so so often missed but that's why he was able to be so successful for at such an early age you know Wells' life is a very fascinating one just on its own to explore uh, all the way just leading up to Kane. And then of course, from, from there on afterwards. From there on, it's just a, takes on a life of its own in the movies. I mean, that's, it's such a cinematic story that it should be easy to adapt in so many ways, but uh, his personality is so all encompassing in so many phases there that you'd almost have to go the whole bio picture route and, really Amadeus it to really make something meaningful more than Mank at least. Um, there, there's so many big pictures of Wells and I'm so glad for our hundredth that we get to go to everyone's favorite film of all time. 
I mean, Citizen Kane it, is the <laughs> film, right? It was it was the most logical choice as the film that has been most consistently for the longest amount of time toted as the quote unquote greatest film of all time. Uh, Calvin, do you do do you subscribe to that theory? Is Citizen Kane the greatest film ever made? I think you can make such an easy objective case that this is like setting an intention for what cinema could become. Like it's the big image of uh, maybe maybe auteur theory, maybe a, someone creating something larger than themselves and all these components and all of his radio and theatrical work and interest in literature coming together and showing that cinema can be all of these things at once. Like that's what the power of cinema is to me is that it's a combination of artistic elements. And I think Kane is one of the greatest examples of combining all these forms to make the most powerful image you can. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. While I would never ascribe any single film as the supposed greatest because raging uh, bull <laughs> uh a, a, any such attempts to be objective in a kind of ranking of films is uh foolhardy uh it's, it's if you'd say citizen kane i might believe you I mean, yeah I might... well that's the thing that's that uh, if you had to argue for anyone if someone said citizen kane i probably wouldn't debate it because i think it's it's earned those accolades um in in, in the way it holds up and the way it was so innovative and fresh and new uh i think like uh dw griffith i think it's important to say that uh, a lot of uh inventions have been you know uh given to to the reputation of kane like the ideas of filming uh, w- w- filming ceilings and such or like uh flashback narratives you know uh twist endings or whatever none of which are are fabrications of kane they're none of which are, are actual things but they've been so ascribed to them over the years because it's such a you know magnificently influential film it's so indicative of all these things and embodying of these things and did it in a way that was so fresh and inventive and it's revolutionary it matters like it hardly matters in history who's the first one to do something we look at a lot of the first for films and they're very trivial things like they're they're shots as someone doing one thing right and that's the first example of that but but that's not the defining example i think i think citizen kane is like the marriage of all those things and everything happening all at once and coming together into a bigger picture yeah uh I think talking about this idea of, of how like lofty the reputation of Kane is, because it is kind of uh, all all encompassing. <laughs> oh my god! Is that Alexa going off again? <laughs> That's okay. hold on. A comedy of errors here today. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be the hundredth podcast if uh, you didn't have Alexa going off, or almost be the twentieth time in, in one of these. <laughs> Everything that could make noise is making noise. <laughs> <laughs> not not the most conducive uh, podcast recording conditions, but uh, we'll we'll still draw on. No, my daughter's been sick for the day, and uh, every electronics going off at once. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a plot uh, against you. <laughs> it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, uh, in in terms of Kane having this lofty, like unreachable reputation, uh, uh, it's not to say that you know i don't want to at the same time discredit the notion of films being as glorious and as inventive prior to 1941 because that's you know like 45 years of cinema history you're nothing happened yeah past it's and and that's not the case at all obviously i mean we've talked about some of the films pre-1941 that you know are really uh 
defining of cinema and masterpieces in their own right. But I think it is impossible to deny that there was a distinct shift in, in filmmaking post Citizen Kane, where things became, you know, more uh, irreverent, you know, they, they, you know, reached for something a little bit more uh, theatrical and more uh, literary, even in a lot of senses, they, they, they mind those uh, ideas and these combinations of artistries in a, in a different manner than they had prior. I mean, Citizen Kane also says, but you can also do this and you can become more literary and it reads like a great novel. Um, it has all the structure of literature. It's, it's the Gatsby of cinema. Is that, is that too, yeah. too much to say? No, I, I know you already right. said that was, I know you said that was the case with Parasite, but yeah, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to give it to Kane for this one. I feel like, uh, Parasite has uh, a lot of obvious parallels, but um, I feel like Kane's fine to say the the great American film. Um, that's fine. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, the best way uh, possibly to put it. Uh, it is this uh, kind of untouchable obus. Uh, and again, to to just knock that out out the gate. Obviously, Wells didn't do it alone, and there's a lot of uh, controversy surrounding that. But at no point, I think, did he not give proper credit to the talents of greg toland his incredible you know cinematographer who taught it's him on the title card right know. there with him so you can't say that he was a hog of credit i mean it's obviously both of them oh, and, and he shared it but he's just he's so clearly the the visionary for the film working in so many capacities and you know retroactively you know we also see it through the rest of his filmography, how that same vision and style and voice carries through in all of his films. He really is an auteur in the classic sense of how we define the term. He he had his fingers in all of the pies. I always look at it as just an open conversation about the making of Kane because we don't, we don't have tangible proof. I mean, I guess the idea is that Kane or uh, Wells went and wrote his part and then, um, what would you say Mankiewicz went, went and wrote his half of the story and then uh, Wells might have taken some of Mankiewicz? Is that, is that how you'd put it together? Well, they, they worked together initially, but they found that they, they butt heads in a lot of ways and they weren't making yeah. a lot of movements. So they went and separately worked on two different versions of it and eventually put them Combined together. Them. There, yeah. there are... There are uh, uh, I think the way a lot of people phrase it, if you look through the drafts and such, is that the the base premise, the the backbone of the film, is there in Mankiewicz's draft, and then a lot of other important elements are there from uh, Orson Welles, obviously. So, so one of the things in particular is the the famous breakfast sequence is bre- breakfast sequence is uh, something that Welles put in. He he kind of took it as a hint from another film whose name I can't recall right off the top of my head that he had seen. And he incorporated that idea into this to demonstrate the falling out of the relationship over this extended period of time through a montage of different breakfast scenes in which a, yeah. it, it, it's really feels like it's like a single conversation being held over through the, the editing and the, you know, the kind of whirlwind sense of it that you get. I mean, the story is so alive in our imaginations that I think we want to ascribe a lot of other things to it, too. I mean, I think there's such a big temptation to to think like, a, well, what did Mankiewicz think of William Randolph Hearst? Or what was his life experience at Hearst that could lead to this? Like, you think about the conception. But then, uh, like, besides Raising Cain, there are so many academic te- 
text disproving like the the kale theory that we didn't quite get to like bogdanovich even yeah one of his disciples wrote a very convincing piece um, okay yeah a, a number of people immediately in the wake of raising cane yeah. back out against it one of the things i saw that shows why it keeps getting uh brought out again this idea is that unlike uh in the case of um Bogdanovich or McBride or whoever who wrote responses to it in the aftermath uh their works aren't reprinted like Pauline Kale's are yes and so even something as thoroughly uh you know defamed and you know uh debunked as Kale's essay uh it still keeps getting reprinted uh which just allows the misinformation to continually resurface and seep into you know the culture though I think largely the the uh the fandom or the uh cinematic consensus is of that that wells is the author i don't think the majority of people think that he's this over you know like this overblown you know yeah uh especially today i think i think it's been more you know we have the internet now i think we're a little bit uh, i I think generally well in factual information (laughs) generally wells's reputation is secure and you know the the great and, and part of it as well is that the availability of the rest of his works have come more for a long time yeah, something yeah. like chimes in midnight was not available to see at all over only in like the recent you know uh like 12 years or so i think was when it finally was able to get some proper home distribution otherwise it was impossible to to find and watch um you know and so so many of his works didn't get the same exposure like i think probably the only film of a similar recognition to Kane, you know, 40 years prior was probably Touch of Evil, which also mm-hmm. was, you know, mangled. It, it had not been yet gotten its restored cut by Walter Murch uh, which, as he did in the 90s. Which still holds, like, basically the same letterbox ranking as, like, Citizen Kane. I mean, Touch of Evil is still very popular today. Uh, touch, per- personally, I have an even greater affection for Touch of Evil than I do Kane. Oh, and, wow. and that's okay. that's that's another thing to say as well, is that even I mean, you could argue any number of Wells's films are potentially the best. Kane isn't necessarily the end all be all of even Wells's filmography. Yeah. You could make an argument for Chimes of Midnight or Touch it, of Evil, or, or it might be for cinema itself. But within Wells, there's a there's a few other options. Well, well, just in terms of influence, I think it's uh, it's not it up for its debate there. that yeah. that Kane is potentially the most one of the most influential films ever made. Uh, very obviously, I think that's the case. So much yeah. of it informs cinema, uh, you know, preceding it thereafter. There's, I mean, there's really no debate about it. I feel like that influence is so high. But then, as I've been going through more of Wells, I see that he already had that propensity in all his movies to make like the a really staggering image like in his Macbeth it's some of the coolest images as Shakespeare I've seen or um, he always has the theatrical uh, delivery and uh, the best line readings I mean there, there's so much depth in them um, other side of the wind and, might be like my personal favorite but right. I think Kane is the best one it, yeah uh, other side of the wind I think for both of us has a very personal place because of just how it kind of came out at the right time it brought me and you together uh, a mm. very special relationship like growing to love wells leading up to it this once in a lifetime opportunity of it coming together seeing it in a fucking theater 
uh i i don't imagine i'll ever have a better cinematic experience than that that is that's That's special yeah yeah but uh i I think you brought up a good point there that kane uh really exhibits that is not talked about as much and that is wells the actor Mm -hmm. and and how great of a performer he is and particularly here in kane where he has to do so much in so many different forms um yeah it's incredible yeah uh, and and all at the age again, he's like he's 25. He's younger than either of us here, and he's playing this this character at like five different points in his life, different ages, different you know uh, fields that he's going into, different ambitions, and and he's thoroughly convincing. At any point, I've seen people argue that you know one of the more underrated aspects of Kane as well is the the, the makeup effects, the the yeah. old age makeup they put on him it's it's entirely immersive and you know believable this idea that you, take you don't this really question 25 year old kid and turn him into an eight-year-old yeah it's it's thoroughly convincing and and also bolstered by wells's performance like him conveying that sense of the aged embittered character this rise and fall of uh, a an, an empire of, of kinds i think it is probably the ultimate as well the ultimate rise and fall narrative this is the textbook example of someone who gains great acclaim and power and loses it all through their hubris it's fascinating endlessly to me that it's trump's favorite movie because it, <laughs> it so embodies his own story now um, I I really appreciate that about it. It's, it <laughs> I don't know it's, why he lacks onto thing, this, and um, uh, obviously I just think he doesn't understand the movie. He says it's like a story about a, a man coming back to their youth, right? But there's so much more going in Citizen Kane. He, he just entirely misses the the mark on everything, obviously. Yes, <laughs> um, there's so much power in the Wells performance. I feel like he is able to convey it and he he has so much lived experience for a 25 year old i that i believe him i i believe that he that he knows what it feels like to be embittered already i mean he you have to understand and rationalize what those things are before you can convey them um and it's one of the more impressive i think directors in their own films and it, it's incredible what kind of range he could have i mean doing all of these things at once at that age is really what's incredible well, also how well the film, like he balances the cast of the film as well. Uh, you know, one of the important aspects of Kane is that it's not Wells telling the story as as the character so much as it is this, you know, eclectic cast of characters piecing together the life of this larger than life figure, uh, you know, through the various interviews and then flashback sequences. And, you know, what's interesting is the structure. And now we get the overlap of the different narratives and, you know, we kind of bounce between, uh, particularly in the case of like a Bernstein story uh, from Everett Sloan's character, mm-hmm. uh, the first interview we do. So after all the childhood stuff uh, where we, we go so forward in time that we see where he loses his newspaper empire before we even really see it get off the ground. Right. Um, you, you could see, well, it's really good because it's nonlinear and it broadcasts the whole end right at the beginning anyway. Yeah. I mean, we know what's going to happen in Citizen Kane, so it's still really good at holding our attention and getting us there. Because, uh, I, I mean, it, it even shows us like the final pieces, like the whole Rosebud thing. I mean, we're playing with the end throughout mm-hmm. the whole story. I had the the great pr- pleasure recently, uh, earlier this year, of sitting down and showing someone 
Citizen Kane for the first time, who knew little about it, you know, little uh, grip on uh, classic cinema in general, and and showing it to them and finding that the film really is much more accessible than you would think. Uh, the 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 irreverent structure of it, you know, and the kind of overlapping narrative seems intimidating at first, but you're right, one of, one of the big things, one of its big tools that it uses to help group people there is that, that beginning montage, which goes by wicked fast. Uh, you're Real not fast. necessarily meant to get everything from it, but it's, it's giving you a, a broad overview of Kane's life so that you can, you know, know where the plot is headed as you kind of head along here. And, you know, it just very quickly throws out all of these little facts about his life and getting married to the president's niece and whatever. It's, it's like it goes by in a flash, but it, all of it comes back later more thoroughly sketched. It's so good at conveying that and then cashing the check on, on what it's, what it's written down. I mean, I love a film that presents something and then carries through the whole film by uh, completely cashing in on, on what it's set up for itself. Yeah. And that, uh, March of time sequence, uh, in the beginning, uh, is really where the, the germ of the film's concept came from that they wanted this, you know, replication of a newsreel footage of this, you know, uh, grand figure and kind of going over his entire life, his life, and then having the, the crew of people trying to piece it together and figure it out through all the various connections he made. That was the, the core concept that Mankiewicz and Wells came up with that uh, framed the film and established this uh, idea. So how about that Greg Toland? Greg with two Gs, because that matters in audio format. <laughs> yes, uh, Greg Toland, the uh, uh, cinematic maestro uh, of the uh, classic Hollywood era. Uh, many regard him as the best cinematographer uh probably, what else you know, has he done really I'm, I'm not that familiar with him actually greg toland uh has done a, a number of films but his filmography is actually a bit smaller than you'd expect with someone uh with such a great reputation as him uh one of the things kind of going back to talking about what kane did and did not pioneer and one of the the big things particularly in accordance with toland is that deep focus photography which is best exhibited in Kane, certainly, but, uh, you know, existed. He was experimenting with it before he came to work with Orson Welles and mostly doing so on John Ford films. Uh, just the, the year before this, he did both uh, The Long Journey Home and uh, The Grapes of Wrath with mm -hmm. um, uh, Greg Toland. Uh, he also uh, shot films like The Westerner, and uh, after this, he shot uh, Ball of Fire with Howard Hawks, which is a personal favorite of mine as well. And uh, his beautiful, stark cinematography really comes through there as well. Um, but Kane is obviously the, the end all be all of his uh, filmography, and uh, how he came to be is uh, kind of interesting. It's an interesting story that Wells has told time and time again, where essentially. Toland offered himself he sought out Wells and said uh I'm gonna work with you like like you know I'm gonna be your cinematographer and Wells is like why why would you want to do that I don't know anything <laughs> about cinematography he's like he said that's exactly why yeah. yeah I'm I'm tired of working with everyone who knows everything here the only way you'll get to invent something or do something fresh and original is by working with someone who doesn't know and that was entirely the reason why he sought to and that's where the kind of a story about learning about you know uh, cinematography and lenses and stuff in a weekend comes from that in that 
interview that um, mm. Fincher kind of uh, misrepresents and disparages. Yeah, it, you know, he, he he calls Wells immature in saying that, and really, he's like entirely misrepresenting the quote, which is essentially that he he learned the basics of cinematography from Greg Toland specifically. He like he, he emphasizes that yeah, if, you know, it's this and that you can learn it in a weekend. Essentially, the the basics. Right, the the, the very basic format of cinematography, the art of yeah. filmmaking, as we all like to call it. <laughs> one of the one of the things that's uh, interesting as well that uh, kind of the stories from it is that uh, since Wells came from a theatrical background, he he was a lot more hands on with things than a director would usually be in films, and particularly mm-hmm. in the case of the lighting, which is usually the realm of the cinematographer to do. Uh, Wells would go around on the sets and set up all the lightings you know, put, put them in accordance with stuff. And and Greg told him would kind of follow behind him and like give people death stares to make sure they didn't <laughs> tell him that he wasn't supposed to do that. And then he would just like adjust the lights after Wells set them up so that they would work properly for film, but keeping yeah. the spirit of the idea he's going for there. And eventually like Wells found out and, and, and he stopped and, but and, and told him wasn't happy about that because he loved this uh just allowing wells to go told like free without any restrictions and just do whatever to come up with it uh one, one of my favorite quotes from wells as well is like somebody asked him where where he had the uh, ability like like what gave him the the confidence to be so innovative and, and his response is just ignorance just sheer ignorance <laughs> like the 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 only reason that Kane is so in, inventive and revolutionary is because wells didn't know that you couldn't do those things and so he, he would basically pitch things that nobody else would would think to do inter visually for the film and tolan would figure out how to do it uh, you know it's amazing because it, well you think of writers and they always say you should know all the rules so you could break them but a lot of innovation could come from not knowing the rules and uh, working outside uh, well a very formalized system where i guess that's probably tolan's idea too everyone already knows what to do to make a movie it's so much more interesting kane is such an experiment yeah and and so ideas like the uh, the the blending of shots and transitions one of the really uh brilliant things uh the visual ticks of uh citizen kane is when you, when they're doing these interviews and like the the light in the the back kind of goes away and then the new scene comes up as the person in the foreground fades out and you know that was only achievable by way of kind of theatrical lighting and so they would literally dim the lights in the background first and then you would you have the mat out of the black behind him as you have the new part coming in you know mm. dissolving in and it would create that effect actually very and, complex and so that's one of the kind of it's... yeah it's 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 uh less straightforward but it makes sense once once you have someone break it down for you and understand yeah uh wh- one of the interesting things that also said about Kane, I believe e. Ebert is the one who said this is that it has more special effects shots than Star Wars, the original Star Wars does. <laughs> That's interesting. Which which is, yeah, it's interesting because well, it's not like the kind of overt special effects you, you see, but like the various things of matte painting and, and, you know, the stitching together of scenes. One of the, the most interesting shots is the one of Kane giving the, the campaign speech because it's several different shots kind of put together so the the scene of kane on the stage Mm -hmm. like and then you have this crowd of people in front of him the only thing that was like 
Wells was a part of was they they had that scene they shot from far away of him on the stage with no audience and just a black background or, or like ex- all around it essentially is you know to mat it out mm-hmm. and then they would stitch together the rest of it on top of that which was a, a miniature and the audience is actually just like the it's a drawing of the audiences with holes poked in and all the seats and stuff and they would flash a light between uh them to make it look like there's kind of movement going on if you, if you pause the film and get up really close you can see that that there's not actually people moving it's just light passing through but it's oh, such sure. an effective it's such an effective bit that yeah it literally looks like there's there's people moving when you are that far away from it and it's just a very it's a quick shot to establish the scale of his his campaign speech but it's so brilliant and again there, there's so many effect shots like that like the castle of xanadu is also a map yeah. background very clearly but it's so detailed and rich uh yeah, and gorgeous. there's and, also- and i feel like he's playing with illusion uh, my favorite like personally that i haven't really considered in previous watches when he's um going up to the other newspaper and you see the picture of the guy sitting there and then then we get the zoom in that it cuts to him walking across and they're actually taking the picture for his what is it a chronicle or his paper whatever that's called yeah oh it's what a, what a great shot it's it's so cheeky and it's, it's a funny joke the the punchline there for it's it so fun and it's a it's another great transition that demonstrates a passage of time like you go yeah. from them looking at the com- competing newspaper talking about how they'll never get it together and then you know it, it's uh they have all those guys and, <laughs> and it's so yeah. important because and six years later <laughs> it's so important. i love that line he's like i <laughs> go ahead Okay, it's so important because it's valuable in the story too, because it establishes that he took these guys from their paper and set them up in exactly the order they were in in the old paper. So no changes to like who they were and and what they were about, which becomes a major problem later on. I mean, it's it's such a value. He literally spot. just lifted them. Yeah, he literally just lifted them from the competing newspaper, and then he's like, send that picture over to them as well to rub it in, <laughs> and you get that sense of his like the the cockiness of of Kane and his you know his hubris in scenes like that, or of course like his introductory scene as an adult where he you know he gets the uh, telegram about you know nothing going on in in Spain or whatever, mm-hmm. and he's you know there's that great line, uh, you you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. Yes. Yeah, to you know, kind of alluding to William Randolph Hearst's hand in, in yellow journalism and spurring on the Spanish uh, Civil War, um, you know, for for his own profit and literally making up uh, conflicts just to create greater fervor. Would you say this is a relevant movie to society? <laughs> <laughs> I think it always will be, certainly, because it does tap into to that idea and these these kind of. Uh, grandiose manipulative uh figures and the the dangers of them i think the only difference today would be that king would actually win that uh political race yeah i think and, that uh, would be a major difference <laughs> but the, the truth yeah like the, the, the sex scandal the sex scandal that you know put him out uh would, would have zero effect on him today <laughs> no i mean there's I think they found ways to cover those things. Um, but but the, the themes of journalism and everything, you could see how obviously every movie that made is relevant um, because it, it gets made because it's relevant. And there's a, a feeling that Citizen Kane still reflects our journalism and our, our conversations about freedom of press and also fake news. 
Well, it's interesting, like to see the the character of Kane and his uh, duplicitous nature and the manipulous the facade he puts forward. Like the whole scene of his uh, uh, list of principles or whatever mm-hmm. that he puts on. It's a it's a show for the character. Like that's the thing is that they were they were never something he he ever meant to represent. You know, by putting it forward and saying that he he is trying to manifest it in the minds of the people. And so when it comes back to bite him, when when Jed Leland, you know, like like sends it back to him later on in the film, it's a, it's a great you know moment exposing his uh, hypocrisy to him. Everything has small human touches too. Even the affair, just starting with her toothache. I mean, it's it's funny and it's it's clever and it says something I think about about her relationship to him. There, there's a great thing about that scene where they meet on the sidewalk and he gets splashed with the mud um, Mm -hmm. that I think most people don't get even maybe 10 or 12 viewings in Uh, it's it's the fact that what he was doing before he got sidetracked with Susan and that was what was he doing he was on he was on his way to go look at at these uh, wares that he had inherited from his, his mother's death uh, and and if you connect the dots of what's going on kind of in his mind throughout the film and the main theme, you know, as we come around to the end, he's really looking for the sled. He's looking for Rosebud when he goes out to do that. The thing that he, he lost, the symbol of his childhood that he that was taken away from him so that he could, you know, have a prosperous life. So he's uh, so close that's, that's to, really... to getting the thing he wanted in the end, but uh, he is detoured. And he, gets, he gets sidetracked. Yeah, he is taken. Mm-hmm. and she offers some which hot is, water which is really interesting <laughs> <laughs> so the, and the the establishment of that bit and they're doing like the the shadow puppets and stuff like you yeah. get the sense that that relationship is real obviously they they do a much better job of sketching out that relationship because that's the clearly important one to him than with his previous wife who <laughs> uh again so so much happens in the in the background like you don't even remember necessarily that he had a wife before then because she's so impor- uh, lesser important and a kid and they die in a car crash uh as we learn in the, the, the newsreel footage it's not really mm-hmm a significant enough event for the film to delve into particularly because like their perspective isn't one that can shine a light on on him uh, you know so for for the framing context of the film they don't delve into that um but yeah so so much of his life is so detailed and sketched and and considered that you know in in the background and in these small offhand remarks you get a, a greater portrait of the man than you do just from the the very thorough and straightforward narrative it's so great at finding the right details and it's really a victory of editing too and knowing what the right moment is but i also can't think of many better examples of editing like in the 40s and this early on i mean the way kane's editing you look at films from the 90s and and they're layering elements this way in less effective ways it's it's incredible editing yeah uh and and it a lot of it goes back to also just like the structure of it and allowing it, but you're right in that the, the way things are presented so many scenes, again, it's, it's so wicked fast. And one of the things I was saying earlier, I think this is when, when I got uh, sidetracked by something that I had the opportunity to show someone this year, uh, citizen came for the first time with like zero context of what it was. And the thing that's surprising about it is that it's such an accessible film still, despite it's rather convoluted nature it's you know a multi-layered story structure and, and how uh, fast it goes by but it's, it's an enrapturing kind of 
editing that really pulls you into the the film sphere and uh you know takes you along for the ride and of course wells's you know charismatic performance is his grandiose figure uh you know it's it's a film that it's it's reputation precedes it in in many ways and it feels like a more intimidating venture than it really is uh one thing that we also don't talk about with kane as much that should be highlighted is that it's a very funny movie it's very witty it's very humorous and entertaining it's not just this like hefty you know dramatic think piece it really is closer to like the entertainment driven films of hollywood than the kind of more esoteric you know introspective french films that might get like lumped in with in terms of like cinema yeah you know um the i i feel like at least anyway it's it's reputation like tends to make it seem uh, more inaccessible than it really is. Yeah. It's been surprising to me to see the online perception. I think you'd be disgusted by many of the conversations that many things like, like threads of like people asking, Oh, so if you're under thirties, does this film even matter to you? I mean, uh, does this film actually work and resounding? No, like across the board in some threads, like resounding, this is the most boring film I've ever seen. And I think how it, it's so fast and entertaining. How how short are our attention spans if we can't handle Citizen Kane? I, I think so much of the barrier just has to do with you know the the general like uh, disinterest in it from younger audiences, which has been the case for a long time. That like these barriers of old film black and white you know these really dumb you know uh hurdles that people have to kind of move get past and uh kane may not be the best film to start for for someone who is inherently biased towards that but uh i I still think it's a surprising film for those who are willing to give it a shot and they're you know they'll be uh swept up in its you know scope uh in a surprising manner uh i was i was gonna ask do you remember your first time watching kane and what you thought it must have been in that radio class. That was the first time I was really introduced to Wells. And I honestly didn't have enough like cinema literacy to really get it. So I, I knew I was watching something special, but I didn't know what those things were. So I think that might be the problem with the people on the internet is that they don't know what they're seeing yet. Like uh, like the first time I watched F for Fake, I was like, God, that was that was a special movie. And then the second time I'm like, God, that that fucking tricked me the whole time right like yeah you, you learn quickly re-watching things what what was special and what things were about it um so i think that's why people are if it's a if it's a failure your first watch i don't think citizen kane is a lost cause either no de- definitely not and there's so much like i said i've, I've talked about there's so much to glean from it on many many viewings so many details that can go overlooked which is why i think that important preamble with the uh you know overlay of the entire uh story is so crucial to making sure you don't get uh totally lost by it but still people generally do i remember my first time was kind of similar that i'm like it was pretty great uh i didn't get all of it but <laughs> great greatest film of all time mm, I, I don't know but you know after like subsequent viewings like I, it was really it was two years ago when I sat down to write that piece on Kane's uh, inventiveness, the visual aspects of it, where I, I studied the film considerably. And that when, when I actually sat down with the film and engaged with it on a really thorough level, that's when it really unlocked for me. And I was like, this really is like the magnificent opus that everyone talks about it to be. It's not just, you know, uh, you know, blowing smoke. It, it really is something 
great and singular and unparalleled. Well, I think my first time was like 17 years ago. So you think about <laughs> life experience too. I feel like Kane is a film that if there's a thread of people under 30 saying they don't get it, it might be a film that you need life experience for, ironically. You might need to be older than Orson Welles was when he made it. Um, At I, least I it's just like... a little more little more cultured a little more open yeah. to to things that's the thing again like it de it depends also i think on what your your expectations are going in uh you know if if you if you're expecting a boring film you know you'll probably find ways to make it boring for yourself <laughs> it's true i think i think they're like fincher fanboys too that are you know uh, that, that's might have been their intro to cinema right right which is fine i think that yeah. like Fight Club, I think, was an intro to a lot of us for cinema and really unlocked something. Uh, I, I think that's a, a fair thing, but obviously there's more to it than that. But uh, yeah, I, I would be surprised at all if like the influx of recent, uh, you know, Kane viewers are all like disparaging <laughs> because they they don't understand it. But at the same time, I don't know what they get out of Mank then either. Um, <laughs> you have to be a lot I'm, uh, more red in Hollywood to understand Mank than Citizen Kane, honestly. Um, yeah i mean and and that, i think that's a great thing as well is that i don't think you need a whole lot of context to get or understand kane i don't think there's anything particularly like uh that that, that weighs on it like time wise i think it's very timeless i think it's you know really transcends that that issue that barrier i think the only thing really is that this idea of news reels uh that kind of recap the story like that's the only thing that if you're not aware that that was a thing then right. the beginning of the film might be even more confusing to you but that's okay because you're not really supposed to get it all in one go anyway it is supposed to be very like it just throw it all at you because that newsreel bit just it, it just goes and goes it doesn't give you a second to absorb much it's just like here's all the information we're going to go over it more. Don't worry. <laughs> and you've seen everything here parodied if you're paying attention to other movies or you've seen it replicated. So for someone new to Kane, it's probably not new at all. I mean, there's... Well, one of the more annoying things with its uh, pop culture relevancy is this fixation on Rosebud. <laughs> uh, Rosebud <laughs> is actually not as important as pop culture would have you think it's not really like a central thesis of the film it's it's a framing device that yes. even wells himself later thought was a little contrived and a little too much like he he would say later that you know he didn't like it thinking back now because it is like it's a very like a you know oh it's it's not the like they present it almost as a rosebud was the answer the whole time but it, it, it's really not and it's supposed to make you think about what that means think, think about what it, this idea means it's not supposed to be so literal i think if it didn't end with that shot of it in the in the fireplace and then go to the castle you might not think that it's about rose rosebud but it's hard not to believe that it was um uh, rosebud right well, well because so they, they, they set it up uh, <laughs> i i think uh, the, yeah the, okay so you so could almost thing, call it hold on my thing about <laughs> rosebud is that it's not like a, yep. a material prop in the story it's about it's a way to look through a guy's life and to see these stages. And because it's a trigger for that stage of his youth, I think that's the important thing about Rosebud is that it's something he's chasing the rest of his life. It's not like the movie or the theme. Right. But, but, but at the same time, like it's important to, to realize that the film is not like solely about that. And in some ways by making it like a literal sled, a literal symbol that harkens yeah. back to his childhood and like the final punctuation on your film, like, 
Kane like reinforces that a bit too much and I think people then like gravitate towards that reading and don't consider the the breadth of his life that we get otherwise like it, like they, they they reduce his you know the theme of the film down to this single idea that it's about lost innocence you know this uh you know de depriving of childhood and it's like it's it's really like only one facet here uh and the sled certainly does embody that but uh, you could argue that, like Wells did, that it might be an, a mistake to like literally confirm this one idea, because it does otherwise leave you on this idea. Like, like it literally says, you can't sum you know a man's life in just one word. That's like the the final bit before they leave and do the rosebud reveal. <laughs> As Donald Trump says, they could have chosen any word, but they chose rosebud, uh, and it was the word they chose, and it was a great word, and it was one of the most meaningful words in all of cinema. I, I don't know if you're making that up or not. I wouldn't. I would be surprised if you are. <laughs> Maybe paraphrasing. Um, there's, there's just so much in Kane, and I feel like we're going to get to a lot more of Wells, but this is really the one that we needed to get to for 100. Yeah, it's it's such a uh, Titanic film. It's such a you know important one, significant, all encompassing. Uh, you know, this idea of it being the greatest of all time, I think, is is warranted without being certain. Uh, I, I think it is just such an incredible achievement, not only for Wells as a filmmaker, but of anyone, uh, you know. And again, also, I think there are other films that are like more from him, things that, that he did differently later on or improved in different ways, did differently, uh, you know different ways he continued to innovate and imagine and be creative. And it, it really is like only the, the beginning chapter of his career. Uh, and the fact that he had to, he overcame so much more, you know, later on, uh, you know, attempts at, you know, foiling his abilities to, to make films, even just with his very next film, which, you know, is a, a tragedy, but still a triumph. Uh, which you one know, came and, next, and also, by the way, the, that was Magnificent Ambersons. Okay. So, Incredible guess, uh, two film punch though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, nice. and then uh, he made the Stranger like four years after that, three or four years after that, which is uh, a little more disappointing. But you know, he it was the only film of his that actually turned a profit. So uh, oh wow, really? Success and it's yeah, yeah. Is that's that the thing that the yeah, that's the the very sad aspect of Wells's career is that, and it was uh, uh, financially not very fruitful uh yeah the, the stranger arguably his most commercial and uninteresting film uh was his m only one that was a financial <laughs> success very disappointing um, but at I different points for different reasons like one of the big things the reasons that kane did not succeed is because there was an entire campaign to not only suppress it but literally destroy it like louis v mayer uh the head of mgm literally offered george schaefer the head of rko to pay for the cost of the film, which was like $800,000 to buy the negative so he could destroy it because uh, it was, it was such a, a, a offense that, that William Randolph Hearst had taken to his likeness being an inspiration <laughs> for it here. It was such a huge uproar. And again, it, go, it went beyond that because, you know, he, uh, Wells was perceived as this major threat to, to everybody. When he came to Hollywood, he was, you know, like when, when he signed the contract with RKO, it was, you know, he, the, the big thing about it was that he was given complete creative control, particularly when it came to the final cut. It was, it was his vision that was allowed. And that was 
absolutely unheard of uh, to a point where they took it back, took it out of his contract when making Ambersons. And then, of course, subsequently, they uh, cut it up and changed it after some very poor test screenings. I've been very, <laughs> yeah, the, again, the... I've been very fond of everything I've seen so far. I think I have a few more Wells left before I'm complete. Yeah, I he he made very few films. Now with the other side of the wind release, we have thirteen feature films uh, of his that were were made throughout his entire life, and and all of them aside from Kane have had have various obstacles or issues with them. Some of them have lots of studio interference in the different cuts they have, and so it's not the perfect fully realized vision of Wells that you know he he got to say. Some of them were marred by you know the issues of getting budgets together because nobody would finance him, and he had to work in in Europe, uh, you know, for a number of films. But those ones are more coherent, complete versions of his you know vision in in a number of ways. You know, it's a, it's a trade off that we kind of have with his uh, filmography, and then of course we're we're only now starting to get decent distribution for his filmography you know i'm still having trouble finding the right versions of, of yeah there's like like 10 of his films or maybe less God, than that are I like there's like three different versions and uh you know you, you you some of them each have something different to offer some of them you know but but mostly i think they're all worth it except for like maybe the studio cut of touch of evil which messes with a lot and cuts so much out uh, though it's easier when they put out versions that they literally label as comprehensive like that one and Mr. Arcaden in particular have versions that were pieced together, you know, many decades later that, you know, reflect Wells's vision the best, according to various notes and stuff that he left behind. And and I guess the other side of the wind under that, you know, banner as well, though, you know, yeah. No way to really know, but it's uh, uh, you hope that it's best wishes and that they follow it. Um, there's it's interesting to go down his path. I, there are interesting movies, a lot of uh, theatrical Shakespeare things. Uh, I, I'm having fun with it. I have a few more left, though. Yeah, it's it's a journey certainly to go on, uh, and one I think is a privilege for for anyone who hasn't uh, started already. Uh, although you know, I, I definitely recommend anyone you know if you're just now getting into Wells, you should certainly start with Kane. It makes the most logical place to start. Uh, it's it's an uh, surprisingly accessible for for how inventive it is. It's you know timeless. You know it, it's really effective for today as well. And, you know, it's it's so charismatic. One of the other big things is like just watching Wells is on screen as a performer and as a per, per, personality, you know, as a figure is just so magnetic, so enrapturing. Uh, and you get some of the most of that, some of the best of it with his portrait of Kane. Well, thanks, man. I'm glad we got to get you a platform to talk about your love for Kane. <laughs> you have a lot of it. Yeah, I'm always more than happy to talk about Orson Welles in, in a variety of capacities. I look forward to the the next one we go over uh, sometime in the future. I believe uh, this is this is our, our our last episode for a little bit, though. We're uh, going to be back in the beginning of the year uh, now that we finally made it to 100 episodes. What an achievement! Uh, you know, fantastic. It's been such a, a ride and a you know a, a love to do this every week with you, man. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And I mean, I love editing these. I love putting them together and getting them out. So uh, hopefully 100 more and uh, very excited for the next year and some changes to the podcast. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, have some some more ways of shaking things up and do it, but maintaining our still usual 
conversational, informative format. And uh, uh, all right, thanks so much. Thank you, man. See you in the new year. Like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear sleigh bells in the snow